Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with musician, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, instructor, business owner, woodworker, and overall awesome person, Trey Martin. Trey has had a few instances in his life to pursue things to the point where he became really good at them. One, on the path of a woodworker, starting from an early age, and two, in his path of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, started later in life. And where some folks may personally master something, Trey has also been able to hone a completely different set of skills to translate these paths into not only personally satisfying work, but to create viable businesses around them. If you've ever owned a business around something you love, you know it's a different skill set than the one required for your passion. So it was awesome to get to talk to Trey, find out about how he got into the world of making things himself, and to learn of the approaches he takes in trying to take something that he is passionate about and put it into a world in a way that can both last and sustain him. We also talk about some of the early 90s Richmond punk scene we grew up around. So with that, my conversation with Trey Martin. How did you get into punk rock? Oh, that's kind of a multi-tiered answer. Um, I have two much older uh, half-brothers, like uh, over a decade older than I am. And one of them was very much into early punk and new wave. Uh, And then the other one was very much into like uh, what we would consider, you know, by today's standards, classic rock and heavy metal. So from a pretty young age, I was exposed to a lot of, you know, uh, everything from that kind of neck of the woods. Uh, You know, we're talking late 70s, early 80s. I was born in 73, so I'll be 50 this year. Um, So, you know, and then uh, then the rise of MTV came about and uh, just so happened my parents had adopted cable pretty early. So I was exposed to, you know, um, what was then considered, you know, of, I guess, uh, acceptable punk rock to play on television, that being The Clash and, uh, you know, uh, kind of stuff like that. I guess Blondie kind of fell into that category, the talking heads back then, I guess. Um, So that was really kind of like the very, very early beginnings of it. And um, my oldest brother was a huge Ramones fan. So, um, you know, that kind of... uh, surfy early you know very garagey style of punk rock is something i i certainly uh was uh you know resonated with me of something i enjoyed so um you know and that was really kind of about it until middle school so we're talking 85 ish 84 85 86 somewhere in there um then I was uh, introduced to skateboarding, uh, really made a, a really big comeback from its, you know, kind of 70s previous heyday. And um, that's when uh, I was introduced to more like, uh, I guess, um, you know, American hardcore and then crossover into thrash metal, like one of those early mixtapes we all kind of ended up with back then. I think one side was Metallica you know, master of puppets. And then the other side was agnostic front and, um, the Chromags. So, Oh hell yeah. You know, so that kind of happened. Um, this guy, Brad, uh, who's the last name I don't remember at this point, uh, that I went to middle school with turned me on to like suicidal tendencies and, you know, some stuff like that. 
but um, definitely was still like a, a total metalhead, you know. Um, and everything, you know, I, I definitely kind of always favored the more Black Sabbath end of things versus the uh, Van Halen end of things, I guess. You know, a little less hair metal, a little more more straight ahead rock and roll blues based stuff. Um, so, you know, that was still definitely a big part of my life, but, um, you know, middle school is when I got introduced to, um, you know, really kind of the, the glut of punk and hardcore and, um, you know, early crossover era thrashy stuff. Um, probably about the time I heard of like corrosion of conformity and, uh, some other, you know, more local esque bands, so to speak, you know, I was, becoming more aware of the DC scene, um, that type of thing. Uh, you know, and as those bands were making their way to Richmond, um, I started kind of venturing out by, I don't know, probably end of middle school. So eighth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, somewhere in there started actually coming out to, uh, some early shows, early all ages shows, that type of thing. Um, and really just oh, wow. very much from, yeah, for me, very early connected to skateboarding. Cause that was kind of, you know, that was everything. Um, you know, skateboarding was really kind of the introduction for most of that. So, yeah. When did you start like playing, um, guitar? Like how did, how did you get into actually like starting your first band and that kind of thing? Oh yeah, that's well. I'm to this day. I'm still not a very good guitar player, but uh, I do enjoy it. So I do bang it around and make some racket. Uh, probably around middle school age as well. I think I got a guitar for Christmas, if I remember correctly, or something like that. Or you know, it's like one of those ones that had a. It was you know like a, a Toys R Us thing. It was, it was a guitar with a built-in speaker, like built mm-hmm. into the body of the guitar. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like uh, ears. Yeah. kind of thing or something yeah something like that um and i you know i beat the daylights out of that thing for a while <clears throat> and then um you know i started taking some lessons uh, i had the strange misfortune to be surrounded by some really talented musicians growing up so you know right. it was very much uh yeah <laughs> I mean, there, there's a couple of families i grew up with like uh you know all of the kids played instruments ended up either doing it professionally or doing it as their job to teach. So, or or still playing music to this day as their profession. So, you know, that's a bit intimidating for somebody who really doesn't have an ear for music, doesn't have any real, you know, sense of uh, melody or anything like that. So that was kind of tough. You know, I didn't really, uh, I didn't take to the instrument naturally at all. Um, But, you know, I kept kind of plugging away at it and beating on it. And then, um, as uh time rolled on i got into high school and stuff like that you know there was kind of always some kind of you know band idea floating around or discussion happening and then um you know several of my friends picked up instruments uh i met some other kids as i got into high school out of middle school and uh yeah just you know it kind of went two directions people went like really kind of weird classic prog rock or they were really into like, you know, punk and hardcore. And there wasn't a lot of in between. I, you know, there was like uh, the marching band kids, but that was it. You know, they weren't like right. punk kids at all. They were like marching band kids. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> it was really like skateboard kids either got into metal or they got into punk and hardcore, or maybe there was some crossover between them. And then, you know, when they started playing instruments, that's just kind of 
you know, how the lines fell, so to speak, I guess. So I think when I met you, you were doing um, the Bastard Squad, but I think it was Vivian in the Bastard Squad at first. Yeah, uh, based on the old uh, Young Ones uh, television show from the 80s in the UK. Right. There was right. a yeah, character, Vivian, who was like the punk rock guy. And then, um, you know, I that was my first exposure to like Motorhead and The Damned and uh, stuff like that because they played on that show. And it was broadcast on MTV like really late at night. So uh, I think probably... Yeah, we had a VCR, you know, I, I don't know, 84, 85, something like that. So, yeah, yeah they, I would set the VCR to record the young ones so I could watch it the next day because, okay. you know, I had to get them to go to school. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's when I was really introduced to kind of, you know, that end of things as far as like seeing some of the UK bands and stuff like that. I mean, I'd heard of the Sex Pistols and all that, but it was just kind of like still, you know, very foreign to me to some degree. How was that experience starting that band like at that time? Because I got like, what what year did y'all start? Like probably like ninety oh, or ninety five? Was before that, that sounds that sounds somewhat in the ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> um, it kind of um, late. Well, I guess it was probably ninety ninety one. Um, I'd reconnected with an old friend who uh, you will recognize the name, but some others may not, a guy by the name of Mark Avery. Yeah. Um, we'd known each other when we were little kids. And um, it just so happened, you know, just through random circumstance, we figured out that we knew each other from when we were kids and he was uh, dating a girl that I was, you know, just good friends with. So I was like, oh, cool, man. That's awesome. You know, so it was just kind of cool to reconnect with him and then he's like yeah man i got this band going with some other guys and um he invited me to come to practice and just kind of hang out and check it out and i was like sure that sounds awesome why not and i walk in and everybody in the band were people i'd known for years so i was like oh well shit that's cool good to see some old friends you know so um you know uh, Russ Jones, the uh, the drummer, um, his older brother Warren and I had uh, met through some other mutual friends, uh, you know, skateboarding, of course. So, uh, you know, when I roll in, it's like, oh, cool, Russ, awesome. And I look over and there's, uh, you know, Lear Baker playing bass. And I was like, oh, cool, Lear, awesome. You know, skateboarding, all that, you know, punk rock stuff. There was a an underage club back then in Richmond called Rock and Excess. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard anything about it. It's probably a no. few years before your time, but um, yeah, they would have uh, like all kinds of, you know, variety of bands playing, but they were like, uh, like the old Sunday matinees that down in the city, they would do like a Saturday matinee and bands would play at like, you know, three or four o'clock in the afternoon. They're done by six or something like that. And then the club would open at seven for dance music and all that jazz. Okay. So, um, you know, yeah, there were shows kind of happening there. I think the first time I ever saw Four Walls uh, Falling was actually there, if I remember like correctly. Like one of the early Sunday shows or whatever? Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, Mickey was probably in the band, I don't know, less than six months at that point. So um, Mickey Shears, who I'm referencing, he was their uh, bass player at the time. And he right. was um, about my age. So, uh, you know, the rest of the guys in the band were a, a few years older. So 
that's how we all got and, you know, figured out who Four Walls was, et cetera. And I'd like to just point out for people listening at home that most of the people you just named off, that's the original Inquisition lineup. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, actually, Thomas was not the original singer, but they weren't called oh, he Inquisition wasn't. at that point. No, um, there was a... Uh, well, yeah, kind of that, that what Inquisition was kind of evolved from several other various projects that Mark uh, had tried to launch. And then uh, I think Lear was involved pretty early, but uh, I think there might have been a different bass player before that, too. I'm not even sure. But, um, yeah, there was another drummer. Um, I actually met him years later, a guy named Chip, um, whose last name I don't remember now because, I mean, you know, it's been like over 30 years ago but uh anyway (laughs) yeah so anyway you know that kind of came about and um yeah the other singer uh, i don't unfortunately i don't remember his name now either uh i don't think he lived in richmond by the time that you know i was aware of what they were up to uh, as far as trying to start uh inquisition so um yeah, Thomas, it's my understanding that like Mark and Lear basically just showed up at Thomas's parents' house and told him, you're going to be the singer now. So, you know, it wasn't <laughs> like, hey, man, would you like to come be in our band? It's like, no, dude, that, that's your job. You get to come be the singer now. So, you oh, know, wow. and you know how Thomas is. Like, you know, he was supremely apologetic about the fact that he was going to be the new singer and all that jazz. So, oh, was, wow. uh, yeah, pretty entertaining. Uh, and I, I'm, you know, Telling that story definitely secondhand because that kind of happened before I, you know, they were already, the four of them were together and, and writing songs. I think they had about a half a dozen songs when I started hanging out with those guys. So, uh, yeah. Um, so when y'all actually started playing shows and stuff, um, what, like, like the scene was pretty well going around that time like like um did y'all start kind of when things were just kind of starting to ramp up again in richmond because i know it had kind of died down for a little while um and then in yeah. around like 93 94 it started really kind of popping again well what what you know kind of give you the at least you know what's the old saying you know your version their version and the truth and you know the actual truth lies somewhere in there uh, from, you know, my, my kind of recollection of things, um, end of 90 or uh, summer of 92, uh, the avail guys were going through some, uh, some changes and trying to figure some stuff out. And, um, you know, there was a marriage and a baby coming, et cetera. So, um, you know, they were just kind of on hiatus. I don't think there was, uh, you know, there was, a a farewell show at one point, but I think by that point, the discussion had already been like, all right, we can kind of make this work long distance for a minute if we have to. So, you know, there was a very quiet summer that year of 92. Um, Inquisition was going through some, you know, personality crisis slash personnel changes as well. And then, um, four walls was actually out doing their first tour uh, or I guess maybe their second tour, I don't really recall. And uh, the opening act was actually Clutch. It was their first tour, and they'd been a band for maybe 90 days. So uh, that's kind of some fun history, so to speak. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I, I saw Clutch's first ever show in, in Richmond, actually. So it was them and Four Walls Falling on a band from D.C. called Hoover. 
So, oh, yeah, yeah. the Discord well, band? Yep, exactly. Wow. So they didn't they didn't quite have a, a, a grasp on the Richmond punk rock scene and the fact that when people slam danced here, et cetera, that everybody did, male, female, et cetera. It wasn't oh, really, wow. uh, you know, so uh, they were having a bit of a meltdown about people dancing. And then um, Clutch gets on stage and they're like, y'all go nuts, do whatever. And then, you know, so they were everybody's favorite band of the summer. Because, uh, you know, very much more in that helmet vein early on, not not as quite bluesy stoner rock as they've become these days. So, yeah, very different vibe back then. But, um, yeah, nice dudes. Um, even to this day, when I've run into them, they've always been super pleasant folks. So uh, that's kind of cool. But, um, yeah, that, that summer was quiet. Then the fall rolled around. Um Avail started kind of figuring out what they were going to do. Inquisition had a new bass player and um, just, you know, some new music was happening. Shows started happening again. Then, you know, I'd really be remiss in not mentioning some of the, the, the bands that kind of showed up that fall or maybe even the year before. I'm not exactly sure, but um, a band called Hagal which is just the word laugh backwards, which featured um, then uh, everybody knew him as Metal Mark back then, but Mark Morton from Lamb of God was their guitar player. And then um, the other guys went on to form, uh, one of them ended up in um, Alabama Thunder Pussy for a while. And then the other guys were in RPG and uh, what was their other band? Uh, Hose Got Cable. So, um, you know, there were some really, really good bands that, you know, guys that had come here to go to school. So that was really cool. There was some, um, you know, guys from the beach, guys from, you know, Northern Virginia, et cetera, putting bands together and girls too. I don't, you know, I don't mean to use that term as a, a gender identifier. Um, you know, there was some, um, uh, a great band that uh, Kendra, I don't know her last name now, but, uh, it was, uh, I can't remember her last name, but, um, owns some restaurants around town but she sang in a band called pleasure Astro. That was awesome. Uh, so yeah, there was all kinds of really cool bands floating around kind of, you know, uh, fall of 92 and into 93. So, uh, yeah, there was this, all of a sudden there was a lot of really good local bands. There was bands coming through. Um, I guess with, uh, you know, uh, avail being out touring and talking to other bands and really having, relationships all of a sudden you start seeing a lot of bands popping up uh the guar guys of course you know guar was still a bit more of a local phenomenon at that point than the international you know rulers of the this hell that is earth etc so right. uh you know those guys were always kind of floating around you know but they're 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 even you know i don't know how much older those guys are than i am but you know, that on average, I would say that kind of core group, you know, Brad, Mike, Mike, and uh, Dave back then, even Bob, those guys were all, you know, I'm guessing they're five to 10 years older than I am. So, um, you know, they were yeah, always just kind of like, yeah, the older brothers of the scene. But, you know, the, those guys were a touring band at that point. So, you know, we got to see them in Richmond, maybe twice a year. And usually it was not in makeup. They would play at twisters and they would just play as, you know, rog, uh, right. Just, uh, actually. Yeah. 
And the first time I saw Avail was actually opening for Rog on a random like Tuesday night. So oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and the thing yeah. is like yeah, because they were like they were second wave punk guar, right? Is that? Could, could I'd that say that's been, a like, pretty fair assessment. One, I think. Yeah. Like Hello, email. Yeah. yeah, I want to say that's pretty close. I don't remember. You know, it's one of those things like you know, if you walk past the Eiffel Tower every day, you don't really think twice about it. So, right. like, you know, I have friends from out of town, and they figure out that I'm from Richmond, from you know whatever else in my life that people from out of town know me for, and. um They'll they'll ask me like, oh wow, do you know the guys in Guar, et cetera? I'm like, well, kind of, sort of, but it's Richmond. You kind of know everybody, you know, right. in your circle. So, um, yeah, just kind of explaining to people, it's like, yeah, I mean, they work in the bars. I know who they are, et cetera. But it's this, am I, you know, hanging out at the slave pit? No, you know. Right. So just kind of one of those things. So, uh, yeah, it's one of those things like where you know Guar's kind of always been present in my grander punk rock life, and even. Before that, I guess Death Piggy to some degree, which was Dave Brocky's band before Guar started happening. Um, that was really kind of, you know, I didn't have a lot of exposure to those guys, really. So that's the one band I get asked about all the time by people. And I'm like, nah, I don't know. Couldn't tell you. So, yeah, they <laughs> tremendous. I mean, it's interesting because the way you're recounting this, you know, there are a lot of bands like that kind of, um, their culture, I think, changed and and drastically positively influenced the, the music scene here in Richmond. Guar, Avail, Four Walls, and and I think like when these and Inquisition, and when these bands would go out on tour, they would almost like be evangelical Richmonders, and that in a way, would, yeah, you know, like kind of bring like because I know so many like my um I know so many people that have come here after meeting a veil somewhere or, yeah. um, or inquisition, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, Oh shit, there's a town out and on the East coast that isn't a total, you know, shit show. It, like you can actually kind of do some cool stuff there. I've often argued that Richmond's greatest strength and its greatest weakness is its apathy. You know, we just generally well, yeah. don't give a fuck about much of anything. You know, um, you know, not to not to veer this down the the road of politics, but you know, during the uh, the 2020 um, you know protests and all that stuff, I was like, man, it's nice to see people in this town actually do give a shit about stuff. So yes, you know, you know, it's just you know, growing up, you know, and also just kind of being, I guess, well, yeah, I am uh, a Gen X kid. Is just you know, we we're credited as being the generation that made whatever an emotion. So, you know, it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know, no, but I, I, I mean, Richmond for many yeah. years was this art town mm-hmm. that wouldn't accept its own art, you know, like, like, oh, uh, yeah. in the nineties, you know, VCU, I think they themselves didn't really understand that they had a lot of talented artists at their art school and a lot of their policies and stuff they were doing with the city you know, it was kind of counter. It was kind of attacking the actual culture that their students were producing. Oh, you know, yeah. Um, and there was a drastic turn in the in the two thousands when, and it really came when they started putting those fucking fish everywhere. 
Like like around the time when <laughs> I remember those things, yeah. fucking fish everywhere. All of a sudden, they started accepting the art, you know. And then we have yeah. all these mural projects, and yeah, all these people moving here. It's a creative city, but drastic 180. And so yeah, when you're going definitely. through all this stuff, this is when the city is actually like, you know, you're talking about Guar. They're shutting down shows because Guar's playing. Like people are losing their oh liquor, yeah. like flood zone lost liquor license, and the city was basically at war with clubs back then. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, the ABC board was draconian. I mean, <laughs> they were, they were pretty brutal back then. And, you know, a lot has changed, but uh, yeah, man, I mean, it was a very different world and especially like, you know, you got to figure and it, this sounds a little, you know, uh, maybe crass, but by the time a lot of those clubs were down to booking punk rock acts, they were in pretty dire straits financially. You know, they're just looking uh, for something that's going to stick bodies in the building. You know, it was easy to get shows so, back then. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we actually had, you know, local punk, you know, affiliated or punk adjacent people who were booking shows, uh, you know, people that were directly involved with the music scene. Um, and, you know, now he's my landlord of all things now, but uh, Scott Staten, uh, I don't think Richmond, you know, would be on the map near with uh, it's, you know, the the acts that have come out of here without that guy in particular, frankly. Well, so he so, owned um, the Biograph, right? And then he owned also the Metro, I think? Uh, I don't know. Frankly, I don't know about Scott's uh, holdings as far as what all he owns. But the yeah. block where my jujitsu school is, is where... Uh, is one of the places that he owns, and um, right next door was uh, the Metro. Then it became well, it was Rockets before that. Then it became the Metro. Then it was the Factory, and then when it was the Factory, it closed down. But uh, you know, right. Scott has owned a, a lot of different things around Richmond. I think he firm, and I don't want to get this too terribly off the mark, but if I remember correctly, he was the founder or sole proprietor of the old dominion club which was an after hours bar um i don't even know okay yeah um the the running joke is i couldn't find it in the daylight and i couldn't find it sober but get a couple of drinks <laughs> in me and you know point me in that direction at midnight i'll find it but yeah uh, i remember that yeah for sure yeah so anyway, like um, to get that license for an after-hours bar in, in Virginia at that time was a 10-year permitting process. So, uh, you know, I guess he put in for it, gone through all the, the rigmarole, you know, got it up and running, and then a few years later he sold it. But, uh, yeah, Scott, that guy, um, I saw some amazing bands in that place. I mean, everybody from – Corrosion of Conformity to Mojo Nixon to Gigi Allen to, I mean, you name it. I mean, if it was punk or metal adjacent from probably, I don't know, late 80s to mid 90s. I mean, yeah, I mean, I lived in that place. I kind of bounced back and forth between there and, you know, Twisters or I guess most folks today would know it as Strange Matter. But um, yeah, I mean, there's been a bit of a club district down through that part of you know gray street broad street since the i don't know late 70s is my understanding so yeah 
but Scott, that guy, you know, he played in a band called the dads. He was the guitar player. They were actually signed to a, a major label at one point in the late seventies. So, I mean, that guy's just been really supportive of just, you know, punk metal, hardcore and all that in this town forever and ever. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to give him a little shout out while I had the, uh, the ear of the internet, so to speak, I guess. No, I feel that. I mean, because the thing is, when, when we were talking about this stuff, it really, you know, there there are a lot of people, and I'm sure most cities work like that, but there's like some key people that, for whatever reason, they decided to do the things that they do, and their personal, um, you know, contributions end up holding a lot and providing a lot of, of what um, – cool stuff actually happens here you know there's a couple other people i can oh, think totally. of like um you know but like these one you know these few people because of the way they do things and, and the way they carry things you know they'll they'll um you know make it so that shows can happen or make it so that cool vegan restaurants can happen all, all yeah. kinds of things but it, it's really interesting when you think back on it you're like wow that guy because that guy did what he did this many hundred bands yeah. can play somewhere. Exactly. Kind of nuts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you name it. I mean, the Bad Brains played there. I mean, all kinds of crazy bands. Um, yeah. I, very early versions of uh, Metallica and Megadeth had made stops through there, Faith No More, all kinds of bands. So, Jesus yeah. God. It was Soundgarden. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it's College Town. You, yeah. If you go back, I think it's, uh, there's a Facebook page and it's like Richmond Underground's 1970s through 1990s, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. just ton. Yeah. I mean, you can see this in any town, but you can find just crazy old flyers for like a month for the shows. And you're like, Holy moly. There were some awesome bands through here. Well, Richmond would always get kind of traditionally for some reason. I don't really understand it. I mean, I think it's people numbers, but it doesn't make sense culturally, but because culturally it doesn't make sense why you would play DC and Virginia beach and skip Richmond because there's a bigger punk scene in Richmond and Virginia right. beach. But that was kind of the the loop that always happened is like, people would be like DC, Virginia beach, no Richmond. Yeah. And, and I think having a place like that, you could see a band like, like I think discharge might've played there at some point. Oh, um, probably. I, yeah. Who's the other, uh, um, GBH. I did see GBH yeah. a couple of times over the years there. So, yeah. Wow. And this is at the, <laughs> the Metro slash factory specifically yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That place was so sketchy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally. I mean, yeah. I'm just amazed that uh, we didn't all fall into the, the downstairs at some point, you know, just because that place was yeah. rated for 300 people. And I, I mean, I guarantee you. Well, the last show there was uh, Avail and like I was there four or five. Yeah, yeah. So was I. And Robbie Huddleston and I are just standing as close to that back wall that's facing Broad Street as we possibly could, because like if this thing yeah. goes, it's going to be in the middle of the floor. So yeah, and then you know they, yeah. So they were like, all right, well, you know, the next thing I know, there's fire marshals and all that, and they're just shooing everybody out of there, and there's never been another show up there since. And so, the fire marshal had yeah. the, the freaking clicker at the door. He was counting every single person coming out that door. Oh, yeah. And it it was way over 300. I want to say it might have been like 450 or something. 
Yeah, I, I know it was it was uh, quite a bit higher than it was supposed to be. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, man. Yeah, th- those were some amazing moments. That th- those uh, definitely uh, my life would be a very different place if I hadn't uh, met those guys and and uh, you know really experienced a lot of that. That's for sure. One of the reasons I really want to talk to you is you've gone on to like make like all these and be involved in all these really interesting businesses. And, you know, when I see someone that comes out of punk rock and gets into something where they're kind of like, you know, putting themselves out there to try and, you know, much like what we were talking about with, with Scott, Mm -hmm. putting your personal influence into making something exist in a cool way. Like, how did you, how did you start like realizing like, Hey, I want to kind of like, make a thing that doesn't kind of exist exist (laughs) right that's a really man that's a great question um the you know again i kind of have to give you a little bit of background um as a young child um and up through you know toddler era and getting into early elementary school uh very timid very shy very would cry if you looked at me funny um, but, oh. uh, and yeah, not to toot my own horn, but smart, I, I could, I could read a newspaper by the time I taught myself to read by the time I was two. And by oh, the time wow. I started school, I was already reading news at, you know, seventh grade level. So, um, Jesus. I was just an, you know, kind of a nerdy kid. I, I, I wanted to know what the paper said. I wanted to, to know what things were. So, um, yeah, I, I you know, was a decently smart kid, I guess, um, which, don't tell kids they're smart because it makes them lazy. But uh, right. <laughs> um, but uh, the the short version of that is um, my older siblings thought it'd be a really good idea to get me involved in amateur wrestling. Uh, you know, toughen me up a little bit, I guess, was their thought process. I uh, grew up in a very blue collar, very solve things with a fist fight type of neighborhood. And I definitely was not that type of person. So, um, you know, a little bit of learning to defend myself, I guess, in a way. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, I, I took to wrestling to some degree, um, pursued it, you know, kind of off and on all the way till middle school. Middle school, I took it a little bit more seriously. High school, I took it a little bit more seriously. Um, and, you know, I, I I won't say I was ever great at it, but, you know, I wasn't just out there taking a beating or anything either. So, um, you know, I I... I wrestled in school I got hurt pretty seriously my senior year and had to have a a pretty invasive shoulder reconstruction um so there was no chance of me wrestling you know after that point so um I really kind of diverted my you know my time and my energy back into um into music and the punk scene and all that stuff and that was really what was holding my interest in and and keeping me engaged and you know just kind of life at that point uh, and I, I kind of always kept up with it as far as just, you know, staying in touch with the, the community to some degree. And um, then after a few years, um, probably, well, yeah, I, I, I've i known my wife since I was, I don't know, like 13 or 14, I guess. But um, we started dating about the time I was, yeah, I was just turned 19. Um, and uh, 
you know, we're progressing a few years now and getting into mid twenties. Uh, we were settling down and decided to get married. So, um, you know, I was looking for something that would keep me occupied and keep me busy, but you know, um, it was also like physical activity. And I heard an ad on the radio for Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'd seen some of that early ultimate fighting stuff and was like, well, it's kind of like wrestling. I can probably do that. And uh, answered the ad and went and took a class. And 25 years later, I own three gyms and third-degree black belt and train as much as my old beat-up buddy will let me. So, uh, yeah, it's really become a, a fascinating lifetime passion. It's certainly not something I ever thought would uh, – not the – the path my life would take or the career I thought I would end up in. But, uh, yeah, what did you think you would end up in? Happens. Well, I'm actually a pretty accomplished, uh, woodworker. Uh, I was a cabinet and furniture maker for a really long time. And, um, I always thought, you know, I would just do that until I was about 50. And then ideally I'd put enough money away to where I could just make my job, my hobby, my hobby, my job. Um, so that was really my, my grand intention was to kind of, you know, hang my shingle, go teach some classes. Uh, you know, maybe a, a couple of buddies of mine had gyms. Maybe I'd go teach there and they could just pay me or whatever. Um, that was really my, my kind of vision, so to speak, which probably wasn't that grand. But, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, I, I kind of looked at it professionally. I said, hey, well, I have two skill sets. I can you know, work in the woodworking industry, or I can pursue this uh, jujitsu thing and see what comes of it. And, uh, you know, my wife at points was more supportive than others, of, of course, you know, um, it's not uh, exactly the, the least selfish thing to pursue. Um, you know, it took me 13 years to earn a black belt. So it's, it's Jeez. not, uh, yeah, it's not something, it is not strip mall karate, you know, it isn't, putting a black belt on a nine-year-old kid. It's a very right. different animal. So, and y'all are coming um, from like the yeah. Gracie school of things, like that kind yeah. of exactly. thought process. Yeah. yeah. So if, if anybody, I mean, I, I now realize that the, you know, ultimate fighting stuff is 30 years old, but those very first early ones where it was very much style versus style, uh, you know, karate versus jujitsu or sumo versus, you know, whatever. So, you know, that was really, I was like, oh, okay, I understand what he's, what's happening here. So um, I think that was the the attraction. I just, it made sense to me, you know, I was like, okay, I, I understand this. And growing up kind of, you know, a rough and tumble kid and skateboarding, punk rock, all that, I definitely had my fair share of scrapes growing up. But um, yeah, being able to wrestle kind of <laughs> certainly had its advantages in that world. So, um, you know, it wasn't the worst thing in the world to pick somebody up and put them down and, and just pin them to the floor where they're not really able to hurt you or you don't really have to hurt them any further. So, um, you know, I, I saw the attraction of that aspect of self-defense very early, and that was something I, I really enjoyed. Um, also, I'm just well, kind of competitive it, by nature, so, you know, I enjoy that aspect of it. Well, and also, it, it, jiu-jitsu is, I think, I've heard it described as like, you know, compared to other martial arts, it is the only one that you can actually really practice fully. Like, like, like you can go like full scale with your skills and practice yeah. jujitsu and not terminally injure somebody. Yeah. 
you know, to kind of give you like a, a descriptor, you know, really broad stroke uh, painting here. But martial arts really break down into two general categories. One is grappling, the other is striking. So whatever name you wish to apply to it, uh, you know, Western boxing, Muay Thai, uh, karate, Taekwondo, Kung Fu are all striking arts. Uh, you know, jujitsu, wrestling, judo, sambo, uh, sumo wrestling are, are grappling arts. So with the grappling, because there's not that sudden blunt force trauma of a strike, it is something that you can train at you know, a, a higher intensity without the, you know, risk of injury. So I right. think that's what the, the, the main, you know, the, the major difference is, is just, you know, yeah, at 50 years old or not quite 50, but close enough, um, I can still be on the mat and train, you know, I, I'm on the mat eight classes a week. And then if like, say like this weekend, my wife's out of town, what am I going to do with my spare time? I'm probably going to go to the gym and train. Just because that's right. what I do, you know. So um, and with things like yeah, CTE, you don't have to worry about that with jujitsu. Whereas if you're like doing kickboxing well, or boxing, I, I wouldn't say yeah, I wouldn't say that. I would say the instances are considerably less. But right. you know, we do practice strangulation holds and things like that. So oh, okay. the instances of you know like uh, TI strokes <laughs> are a real thing. People have had strokes from being you know strangled. And, you know, yeah, and we've seen it on television. People have died, uh, you know, and, and I'll be the first to tell you it's not as easy to kill someone as they make it look in the movies, but it is right. not as hard as you would think. So, yeah, it you know, that's you see untrained people. And unfortunately, a lot of them are law enforcement applying techniques that they really don't understand and end up hurting people or killing people in the process. The The big difference is. Yeah, we're not ex experiencing that blunt force trauma, but, you know, grappling, you know, you're twisting the legs, the arms, the neck, et cetera. So, yeah, there's absolutely a level of injury. Um, and especially like, uh, you know, at one point I was still competing and um, what ended competition for me was a neck injury that, you know, could have easily landed me in a wheelchair. So, yeah, it's oh, wow. um, that there are there is some danger. It is it is difficult. Um and I'll be the first to tell you it's hard. Uh, you know, I've been training now for 25 years. And when I started jujitsu in Richmond, which would have been uh, fall of 97, uh, guys that are still training that I knew uh, at the time um, that are still training today, you know, 25 years later, there's four of us. And I'm one of the four. So, yeah. Wow. If that gives you any idea what the uh, the attrition rate is, it's well over, you know, 99%. The old saying is, you know, if 100 people start jiu-jitsu, 10 of them will make it from their white belt to the blue belt, which is the next belt. And then of those 10, maybe five will make it to the next belt. Of those, you know, five, maybe two will make it to the next belt. And then maybe one will make it to the black belt. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a very different animal. And it's not, you know... It is not something where you can just earn it by kicking the board and bowing to the flag and tying your shoes correctly, you know. So it's it's a very different uh, endeavor. It's very much a lifestyle. It's very much on par and akin to something like surfing or snowboarding or skateboarding to some degree, in my opinion. You had mentioned and kind of glossed over that you're a very accomplished woodworker. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so can you fill us in on that timeline? Because I think that's what I know oh. of the first business that you kind of started. Uh, well, I didn't start one. Um, I'm kind of invested in one at the moment, but okay. that's that's really about my involvement. Um, so actually, what I my grandfather was a tradesman. Um, he died when I was very young. But uh, really, my, my father and my uncle uh, would buy, sell, and trade antique furniture and artwork and stuff like that and do restoration and repair. So just kind of hanging out in the garage, you know, I started learning and um, just kind of was always decently handy. And then when I got into school, uh, any kind of mechanical class like that I could take uh, as far as like industrial arts and stuff back then I I took just because I was interested in it. And um, I got out of school, you know, I said I had a pretty bad shoulder injury and uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. I didn't really have any major plan or direction, but I was like, you know what? I can build a box. That's something I can do. Um, And then um, my wife, one of her clients actually owns, uh, they do all kinds of uh, cases for all kinds of different things. Everything from golf clubs to guns to musical uh, instruments. They moved down to Richmond from uh, New York and were opening a factory here, a plant. And the plant here was, or it's up uh, in Oilville, so it's about, I don't know, 20 minutes outside of the city. Um, they opened up a, a you know, plant here in, close to town, and uh, all they did in that plant at that time was really uh, prototype and custom work. So pretty early on, uh, you know, I was building really pretty crazy pieces for basically anybody in the music industry you can think of everybody from Eric Clapton to the guys in Metallica and about anything in between. So, um, you know, they would get some fancy old guitar or something like that. And they'd want a new case for it, but they'd want something custom, uh, you know, and then there was things that would become production pieces or limited edition runs. So we would do prototype work for that type of stuff. And then, you know, the, the, yeah. So I did a lot of like really hands-on custom work and, with things like that. Um, and it was, you know, they were pretty great people to work for, uh, great benefits package, et cetera. But, uh, you know, getting time off, getting, um, really paid on par with what I knew other woodworkers were making. That was Mm -hmm. not going to be in the cards there. Um, and then I got a phone call from Eric Larson and asking if, uh, I wanted to go on tour with avail that fall. And I was like, well, I've been kind of looking for some way to change up things, and that sounds great. So I quit that job, and I went on tour with Avail for uh, a couple of months, something like that. And uh, did that for a while, came home, and um, was looking for something else to do. I was just kind of bored. And um, a buddy of mine was like, I can get you a job driving a truck at Budweiser. And I was like, um, sure, I'll give that a shot. That lasted a couple of months, and I figured out everybody who worked there was either uh, single or divorced because the schedule was awful. So um, got out of yeah, got out of that pretty quick, and got back into a cabinet shop, and then basically worked doing nothing but high-end custom cabinet work uh, until I don't know, roughly about five years ago. Um, I still pick up maybe one project a year, just something that. If it interests me, I'll do it. But other than that, I don't really do any woodworking unless my wife says I have to. So, you know. (laughs) So that's interesting. So you have two things going there 
I guess three, yeah. including music, that are like lifelong crafts, like things that you're going to spend your entire life, like things that you, yeah. Yeah, you can't just show up at the mall and get the thing. Um, no. That you've dedicated yourself to like mastering and, 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 and have mastered. Well, I don't know if you, you know, always a student, never a, you right. know, never a master. But, well, I mean, you, you've but, reached a level yeah. where they, they've run out of ways to quantify the level yeah, ba- yeah. Master. <laughs> basically, basically after you get to black belt it's just like don't die and keep training and we'll keep promoting you so um right. i will earn my yeah i'll earn my last belt rank when i'm 78 so yeah so i'm, I'm, I'm that's what i'm shooting for at this point and uh, all right just good to have a goal for for aging well so i'm shooting to be in good enough shape at 78 that i'm still training so <laughs> that is amazing well, kind of jump into the back to the, kind of the Brazilian jiu-jitsu stuff. Sure. Um, how have you seen that change over the past, you know, I mean, 20 years ago, it, it wasn't, it, it just really came here. And, you know, around the same time. It was very time, fringe. Yeah. And, and around the same time, like, I think UFC had just started. Like, you know, I, I had Andrew uh, yeah. uh, Smith on here years ago, years ago and he had kind of started out in it by making he was dubbing video like dubbing early ufc yeah VHS tapes, VHS you know. tapes. it's actually how we met <laughs> oh wow <laughs> that's how andrew and i met yeah uh-huh. yeah i and, don't know if and, you know this but andrew and i have been business partners for over a decade yeah well yeah because he he ran yeah. um revolution right yeah yeah i'm right. one of the owners of revolution with him yep yeah, and 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 he had talked about how it had kind of, you know, then all of a sudden you've got, you know, I, I guess around maybe ten years ago, MMA just exploded, and with yeah. that brought all of that UFF or the UFC stuff that was kind of underground into this larger picture, and people started, you know, kind of having this this revolution of understanding of martial arts as something beyond what had traditionally been, you know, Kung Fu, right. Karate. And now yeah. it's looked at as a very practical thing where, you know, people, they, you know, they have their kids trained in it. Um, oh, how absolutely. Have you, yeah. How have you seen that like shift? Like personally? Yeah. I mean, it's when I started, you know, I was in my, mid twenties. Uh, and it was very much an underground and very fringe activity. Uh, the wrestling world, you know, the amateur wrestling world was very, uh, standoffish about it. Uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, the judo world didn't you know, want to have anything to do with it. Uh, cause they just thought it was like basically human cockfighting. Uh, as far as like, you know, oh, wow. they, they really, yeah, they really equated Brazilian jiu-jitsu with, you know, what we would consider MMA now. Back then they referred to it as, you know, no holds barred. Or in uh, Brazil, it was Vale Tudo, which just means freestyle fighting. And back then there was only two rules, no biting, no eye gouging. Anything else was legal. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, so, I mean, it was pretty wide open and it was very much considered like kind of a, and even now in Brazil, it's my understanding that it's kind of a you know a thug activity, so to speak. Um, and it's not an Olympic sport, so you know the people that are serious, the wrestlers and the judo players in that world, 
really didn't get a lot of credence for a very long time. Um, and then, you know, I'm, from wrestling in school, I, I got the opportunity to go back and do some coaching in the early 2000s. And even back then, I mean, you know, 20 years ago and 10 years after the launch of the UFC, um, there was still you know, this kind of perception with, with parents at the time that MMA was jujitsu. So there was this, you know, kind of learning curve that jujitsu was something, it was part of MMA, but it was not all of MMA. You know, there's a lot of different factors of that now. Got to be able to strike, got to be able to wrestle, got to be able to grapple, et cetera. So, you know, a lot of that very early perception, you know, like where you thought you would pull students from, uh, whether it was um, law enforcement, whether it was first responders, whether it was uh, uh, kids wrestling programs, there was this really big disconnect. They, they really, nobody wanted anything to do with it up until, you know, uh, the first Ultimate Fighter show. Uh, and I don't remember the year, but uh, after that, after that reality series, things really dramatically changed. And there was an ownership change. I think another group bought the UFC and they, you know, they, they actually got into actually getting it regulated and back on cable and all that stuff. But um, really, if it was not for the growth of MMA, jujitsu probably would not exist as far as in, in any way that it looks like it does now. You know, it'd be something that was kind of relegated to, you know, uh, a, a very, 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 very small population. So, um, you know, I think uh, there's, well, I don't think there's quite a million, but I think there's probably hundreds of thousands of active competitors just within the United States now, uh, as far as jujitsu goes. So, you know, practitioners, so to speak. So, you know, there's only about 50,000 judo players in the United States. So that gives you kind of a point of reference wow. there. Wow. Yeah, and that's an Olympic level sport. Yeah. Do you so, think yeah. jiu-jitsu will ever get into uh, the Olympics? Not in its current format, no, because there's not – It's um, there's no governing body. Uh, the world championships of jiu-jitsu is all held essentially by a private corporation owned by one of the Gracie family members. So until they can kind of break the, you know, the bottleneck that is the Gracie family and their control of things in large part, uh, you won't see it become an Olympic caliber sport because they make way too much money off of it. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's just, you know, not to get into the politics of things too much, but yeah, that that's really the big drive is, you know, the IBJJF, the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation, is a privately held U.S. corporation owned by Carlos Gracie Jr. So, yeah, it's not a governing body. Gotcha. But, you know, yeah, they just happen to be, the, you know, the 800-pound gorilla, so to speak. So, right. you know, they're the big, right. big dog of the industry. So everybody kind of plays by their rules, so to speak. But no one, yeah, there there really isn't any to speak of in that world, so. How have you seen it affect, uh, like, people and that kind of thing, like people that have, um, you know, gotten involved and in, in that you've, you've started training with over the years? You know, it's, it's uh, yeah, it was very much a fringe activity when I started. So you had ex-wrestlers, you had law enforcement, you had power lifters, uh, a lot of uh, military or former military at that time. Um and just that kind of 
you know, what I would refer to as the raw meat and gunpowder crowd uh, definitely took to it pretty early. Um, but then, you know, all the Brazilian guys, they're all surfers and they're all stoners. So, uh, you know, that that kind of thing. Yeah, I shouldn't I shouldn't paint with that broader brush. But, yeah, it's a very common combination and lifestyle within the, you know, the upper echelons of the of the game these days anyway. So a drastic um, difference yeah. than the other yeah, that you're pretty, describing. Yeah. It's it's kinda of, you know, it's like the the surfers and the stoners are wandering in and you know, teaching the military how to defend themselves. So oh my uh, God. Yeah, it's pretty entertaining. But um yeah, it's it's funny, man, because you know, the in the last few years, you know, politics have uh, definitely been um a very divisive thing in people's lives and you know, social media everybody thinks that everybody else cares about their opinion. But uh right, sure. the um the yeah uh, that that's definitely been um something that's you know we've had to to tackle in the gyms and and at the end of the day uh I don't really care what your politics are as long as you're not hurting anyone and you want to learn jujitsu come on in I'm happy to teach you so you know it's I'm in a customer service business but you know if I think you're a threat if I think you're dangerous if I think you're in there trying to you know take advantage of people no matter what the situation is I will absolutely ask you to leave but at the same time you know I'm not going to reject anybody just because they happen to come in the door with their you know Punisher shirt on or whatever so you know yeah that brings us to what I want to ask you about because you kind of mentioned it before I don't want to put you on the spot mm-hmm. politically or something but you know we just recently had this guy Ivo Otieno, who um, yeah, he, he was killed, and and you know I, I for years I worked kind of doing like policy analysis of um, with a radical mental health group, uh, looking at some of the policies that police departments used in kind of taking these calls, responding, trying to teach officers like de-escalation and things like that. Um, sure. When you have people like that in a in a position where you know they have to be able to restrain somebody safely, because um, that is a thing that has to happen. If someone's flipping out, like sure. you know, you have to <laughs> you have to be able to yeah. take control of them for their own safety. Um, yeah. As someone that practices holds and things like that, um, mm-hmm. do you do you find that you do have like officers coming to you that are actually like learning? how to properly restrain people? And if so, do you think that would personally make them better at their ability to do their job than let's say what they get trained on the job? Um, the, well, what I will, what I will say is that uh, police departments do recognize the deficiency uh, because yeah. I've had several conversations with law enforcement about issues like that over the years, uh, especially over the last several. Um, you know, and there are existing programs that will sponsor police officers uh, to come train in academies, like they help offset their tuition and things like that. Uh, and I, I've talked to a couple of them, but what I've run into is what they would consider their standards of completion are really, really, really not in alignment with what I would consider mine 
or really what I would consider signing off on for for law enforcement, frankly. So um, right. that's one of the reasons I personally haven't become involved with anything like that. Um, just for a little bit further background, my oldest uh, sibling was a Chesterfield County police officer for, I don't know, from the early 80s until a couple of years back. So um, we're, we're 12 years apart in age, so, you know, I don't really keep up with his day-to-day, obviously. But um, the, um, the the kind of give you some some history there but uh the uh what what i recognize is that there are police departments who understand that their training is not sufficient uh i don't know and and i can't speak for all of them but uh you know i i've seen some interest in police officers learning specifically brazilian jiu-jitsu as a control technique uh right but you know, it's also a fine line because I'm also not interested in, in making police officers even more dangerous, you know, if that makes sense. Right. You know, I, yeah. I well, and again, you know, just in any profession, whether you're a ditch digger or a police officer, you're going to, there's going to be people that are good for the job and people who aren't, you know, that's just kind of the nature of humanity, I guess. But, um, well, you know, it's, it's certainly a struggle there, you know. And that's the big shift that I think has kind of happened over the last, you know, 10 or 20 years with with the housing turns. I think there's people that are getting into those jobs that maybe wouldn't have like 20 years ago. Um, oh, sure. You Like they're taking it as a job, which it, it seems more sim- like you have to have a certain temperament, just like, you know, doing anything kind of like that is a lifelong thing. Like yeah. you have to have a certain temperament for it. Yeah, and, I, I, it, it's a joke, but you know, my my brother, the the joke was he was born a cop, so you know, <laughs> just it's just yeah. always been a cop, you know, it just is. So you know, some people are just born to be cops. I think so. Well, it takes us, you know. I I think it takes. Um, I mean, I'm I'm as critical of the police as anybody, but I think I've actually had some had some really good interactions. I've had some cops that have, uh, you know changed my life very positively. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, I try to keep my head on that. They are, um, we call it, uh, mandated reporters, you know, just like yeah. anyone else that's in that thing. Like you probably don't want to say a little too much about them <laughs> around, them, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, yeah. um, you know, they're humans and, um, sure. and, but um, kind of falling from that um, and, and kind of going back into more of the jujitsu thing. Um, so like my kid, for instance, um, sure. wants to get involved in something like this. Mm-hmm. How have you seen that kind of change, um, you know, when, when kids come in and, and kind of get involved? Have you seen it give them like confidence? Have you seen it um, – have you seen them grow from from jujitsu? Like, what has been the experience that you've witnessed? You, you know, it's just like uh, there's every color in the rainbow. Kids are no different, and you know, some of them absolutely take to it like a duck to water. And then I've had kids that have tried to actually physically run out of the gym. So oh. you know, you just <laughs> you just don't know. <laughs> It's, it's, I've actually had to like go like, 
like scoop a kid up who like just straight split out the door. So oh my uh, God. it's, it's, you never know what you're going to get, but uh, you know, they, that's the, the, the one thing that I think people forget is like, you know, children, while not as developed a personality as an adult is their own unique personality. And they all receive and, you know, regurgitate information differently. So, you know, it's, uh, you, you just don't know, you never know what you're going to get. Uh, but the ones, you know, the ones that come and are there every day, they just, you know, it's their life. It's what they do. But then, you know, I, that's rare. Uh, we have more kids that, you know, they're there for three months cause it's in between soccer or swimming or, you know, whatever else, you know, multiple activities that kids have, you know, do these days. So, you know, my parents didn't grow up with money, so I wrestled in the winter and I played baseball in the summer and that was it. So, you know, um, it was, uh, it's very different now because kids are in acting classes, they're in comedy classes, they're in skateboard school, they're doing jujitsu, they're swimming. It's, It's just a very different time now, I think. So, you know, kids are exposed to a lot more stuff, but, um, you know, the ones that really are just like, it's their thing. Yeah. I mean, they're absolutely eat up with it. I've got a, a set of boys, uh, brothers that I swear if we had a class seven days a week for kids, they'd be in every one of them. And their parents drive a little more than an hour to get them to the gym every day. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're out there, you know, but I think that's, yeah, that's, do you think that's not the norm. Do you think that's you know? because like when we were kids, you know, like, we could do anything and our parents didn't take us sure. anywhere. I mean, at least my parents did, you know, it's like, dude, you know, you got out of school. My parents generally knew where I was generally like I'm in the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and now it's like, you know, if you let your kid do that, the CPS is going to end up at your door. Like oh, you, totally, man. yeah. And yeah, so because of that, deal. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think we like have to you know, we know these kids need these things. And so we actually have to take them to these kind of like pre-planned activities a lot. Whereas, you know, we were just right. kind of like, let, yeah, here, just go be in the neighborhood somewhere. <laughs> yeah, um, man. I mean, that was, yeah. From, I grew up kind of near uh Henrico doctor's hospital, like the skip with and forest one kind of over sure, that sure. neck of the woods. Um, so yeah, Regency mall was two miles from my house. Uh, the village shopping center was a mile and a half from my house, maybe something like that. So that was kind of the deal. Um, until I got into middle school was just like, all right, stay within like five miles of the house. That was it. <laughs> it was just, That's you know, don't die now. <laughs> yeah. Don't That's die. Like don't set anything on fire. Child now. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's so but not but the thing kids, is everyone man. was doing yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I would walk back and forth. I lived six blocks from the elementary school, so I I was a latchkey kid. I walked myself to school in the morning, and I walked myself home in the afternoon and let myself in, did my homework, and had a snack and hung out till mom and dad got home. So, yeah, while taking care of my brother, who was three years my junior. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Man. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> well, kind of um, wrapping up here, I wanted to – you had mentioned that you had just taken over um, – Oh, Richmond Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you kind of doing here for the future? Like um, I know that had been a big thing. So for, for many years, 
there was a synergy kind of between revolution and Richmond and, um, Oh yeah. And now it seems like it's, it, it's together. Yeah. So, um, just to kind of give you the, the, the quick version, uh, Eric and Liz, the previous owners, uh, called us kind of out of the blue, not a, not a conversation or a phone call that we were expecting. And, uh, by us, I'm talking about Andrew Smith and I, um, cause we were day one students there when Eric opened that gym, we, uh, we trained there. So, right. um, you know, and he, he knew that we were, uh, you know, I guess decently business savvy at this point, you know, success is not a straight line. It never is and never will be. But, um, you know, they were like, Hey, look, we're just, you know, COVID has changed our priorities. We want to do some different things and, uh, we want to know if you guys want to buy this place. And we're like, well, okay, I guess there's that. Um, because, you know, through COVID, obviously uh, we took a pretty significant financial hit. And then, um, we had just opened a gym before COVID out in the Ashland area. So, um, you know, our, our finances were something that we're like, Oh, we're going to have to see what we can pull together here. But um, we were able to make it, yeah, we were able to make it work. um, And uh, we were able to, you know, make them happy. You know, we paid them what they were asking. So, um, so yeah, we bought the place from them and uh, through some negotiations and discussions, it was decided that I would head back downtown with um, what I would consider kind of a second generation um, black belt um, uh, to come help me run the day to day. And uh, basically what's going to happen is over the next two years, we're going to get that gym, you know, staffed and a full schedule up and running again. And uh, once that happens, then I'm going to step away and we're going to go either open or buy another gym. So, um, but uh, yeah, Eric and Liz just decided they wanted to do some different stuff and they knew it would be in good hands with us. So we bought it. And um, yeah, it's been, uh, been a real interesting year. It's been you know, to come back down there for me, I haven't trained down there with any regularity since like 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. Oh, wow. So, uh, cause I, yeah, cause I've been out on my own. I have my own gym. So, uh, you know, I just didn't get downtown very much. So, uh, you know, to come back down there, it was, uh, kind of a shock, you know, it was, it, it took a little getting used to, it's like, uh, kind of seeing an old girlfriend again, you know? Right. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a lot of really, uh, awesome folks down there uh, a lot. You know, we do get VCU kids and, you know, they're fine, but uh, you know, there's just kind of this stalwart crew down there of about 75 people that have been there forever. And um, yeah, it's been great. So, um, you know, with, with change, all, you know, somebody's always going to feel the rub, you know, there's, you're not going to make everybody happy, but um, yeah, so far, so, so good, you know, just going to keep on teaching people how to protect themselves and, hopefully do some good with it. And I don't know if I can really get some things happening. I'd like to spin it into uh, kind of like an after-school kids program with uh, Carver elementary and maybe some other things in the city, et cetera. So I'd really like oh, to see, oh, yeah. uh, get, I'd love to get something established within the, the school system in the city and uh, even at VCU as well. Um, but, you know, I've got some, uh, I've got some big ideas, but uh, you know, the devil's in the details, right? So a lot to work out between now and then. What advice would you have for folks that, I mean, because listening to everything, you know, that you've just kind of briefly outlined in the past 
hour or so we've been talking, like, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people, they get a job, they work for someone else. Um, you know, maybe they don't really find something they connect with. And a lot of what you've been talking about are these very rare things for most folks to come in contact with, which is something that you resonate with at a level that it becomes something that you pursue as craftsmanship for decades, not because you have to for someone else, but because you have to for yourself. Um, Yeah. What advice would you have for somebody that was like, you know, trying to find something like that or, or maybe scared to pursue something like that? Um, that might be listening. So the, the business advice I give people first and foremost is, well, there's a list of books I I tell people to read and I'll, I'll give you some of those if you like, but, um, the, the primary advice I tell people is what are you passionate about? And they'll rattle off something at me. I'm like, okay, great. How do you monetize it? How do you make money doing what you're passionate about? Because being passionate about something, being good at your craft, being good at your trade is one thing. Being able to monetize it is something else. And those are two kind of different skill sets. They're very different skill sets. Um, And I, I tell my students all the time, it's like, look, I teach for free. I teach because I love it. I teach because I enjoy it. I get paid to do all the crazy fucking nonsense that makes a business run. And there's a lot of crazy fucking nonsense all the time. So, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, it's, you just have to kind of wade into business with the understanding that you're essentially standing in the middle of a forest fire with a shovel and you're tossing dirt on the closest fire to you all the time. So, yeah, (laughs) it's good. Yeah, and if and if you're and if you do it well, you can make a living and and have a pretty decent life. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think you can definitely have a decent life without making you know the the American dream, million dollar living, etc. Uh, you know, um, it's something that I'm sure everybody has this impression that um, you know I'm a millionaire and all that jazz. I live in the same 1,500 square foot townhouse I bought 20 years ago. I drive, you know, a, five, a seven-year-old pickup truck, eight-year-old pickup truck. So no, yeah. it's it's kind of, you know, um, it, we've been, you know, successful on our own terms. And we live lean and we invest our money back in into the gyms and back into our instructors and back into the students because that's what we're passionate about doing. And that, that's that's a real interesting place to be. And I understand how difficult that is to get for most people. Um, and it didn't come easy. There was, uh, a lot of years where I worked, you know, a 50 hour week in the cabinet shop. And before I went to work, I was up and at the gym and teaching a class at 6am, then coming back and teaching another class at 530 in the evening, then in there on the weekends teaching. So, yeah, I mean, there was several years where I don't think I had a day off. So, yes, you know, that sounds, that's a hard, yes, I'm sorry. yeah. Yeah, I think the thing that people also kind of miss is that a lot of folks that are able to do what you're doing, it's because they have sacrificed their standard of living to get to there. You know, like like they've been willing to like, you know, like if you're starting a business, like you're going to have to go really lean on a lot of stuff. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. And some folks have a and, really hard time, like, not buying the shoes they want this month or, <laughs> oh, you know, sure. like, not yeah. having new clothing for a couple of years, you know. Well, to be, you know, the really the, the discipline came for that with me with fatherhood. Uh, you know, when I became a dad, um, I, I immediately took backseat to everything else. So, and actually, I, I'm, I'm third in line because, you know, uh, well, I guess fourth because you kind of count the cat. But uh, it is <laughs> the wife, the wife, the kid, the cat, then me. Everybody else gets taken care of first. So, right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, that's just kind of, you know, that that's what I signed up for. And uh, my wife uh, is an incredible woman and has put up with all of my crazy nonsense for all these years. And luckily we got, uh, we caught a bit of a break and it pays the bills now. So, yeah. You said you guys have been together since you were 19? Since I was 19. She was 23. She's four years older than I am. So that is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, pretty wow. crazy, man. You know, you just if hey, if it works, it works. I d- don't ask me to tell you the secret because I don't know. The um, books you mentioned, yeah. What? If you give me like three that like sure. someone that wants to do that. All right. So the 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 first one, and it's it's just awful. You will not want to read this, and it's like reading how to install a stereo. Or something. It's just just god awful. But it's called the art of selling, and it was written back in the eighties. Um, and you kind of have to suspend our kind of anarcho punk DIY selves for a moment to get through it. But once you can kind of absorb the information, then you're like, okay, well I can do this within a level of, you know, ethics that I'm, I'm comfortable with. You know, the, the martial arts industry is ripe with charlatans and snake oil salesmen. And there's all kinds of ways that they go about basically just kind of coming up with fees and ways to charge our students more money. And that's something that I absolutely will not do. And, you know, we're not the cheapest gym in town to train in, but there's no, there's no belt fees. There's no certificate fees. There's no, you know, fancy shoelace fees or whatever, you know, none of that nonsense. So, uh, you know, that, that's something that you kind of have to read these books understanding they aren't written necessarily for people who are of our background, but their application fundamentally is important. And you have to understand that kind of source material first, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. That one's called the art of selling. Uh, The other one is the e-myth. And basically what that talks about is your fundamentals of um, uh, E standing for entrepreneur. Uh, Just because you have, you know, in my case, I'm a cabinet maker. Uh, Say I might be the best cabinet maker in Richmond or whatever qualifying statement makes people convinced that you are. That does not mean I have the skill set to run a business as a cabinet maker. We touched on this earlier. They are very, very different abilities. And learning those abilities is a skill set that if you don't learn them, you need to be in a position to pay people who know them. Uh, right. And that's, you know, that, that's, that's a tough place to get when you're first starting out. So, um, yeah, the E-Myth is a great book. Um, I, I really don't recommend Think and Grow Rich uh, um, 
you know, HR from the bad brains and all that is a, a proponent of that. But um, just knowing some of the history of the guy who wrote it, uh, it's a bit suspect. So I tend to not put a lot of stock into it. So, but a lot of people will tell you think and grow rich. Um, I don't put a lot of stock in that one. Uh, the last one is, um, well, there's two more. Uh, one called Who Moved My Cheese? And basically it's, uh, I don't know, the book is maybe 50 pages, but everybody should read that book. And it basically talks about two people and two mice and how they both navigate uh, a lack of cheese in their life, so to speak. So, but it's, a, you know, it's a really great kind of, uh, you know, a uh, fable, so to speak about, um, you know, business life. And then um, the, yeah, uh, uh, the Idiot's Guide to Guerrilla Marketing is actually a quite good book to pick up, especially for anybody that's trying to get, you know, um, visibility in their particular, you know, market. It's a real nice uh, way to kind of come across some very cheap ideas to market yourself that, uh don't involve being involved with Google or, or the like. So uh, it's a pretty interesting read. So I, I definitely recommend that one. So uh, yeah, you got E-Myth, you got uh, The Art of Selling, and um, The Idiot's Guide to Guerrilla Marketing. I, I would probably start there. There's there's a bunch, um, but yeah, I'd start there. Uh, if you wanted one other, maybe, um, oh, uh, What's the uh, the Tim Ferriss book? Uh, the Four Hour Work Week is actually oh that yeah, book. yeah yeah that is a, yeah I read that was a great book yeah he's kind of an interesting bird but uh, yeah that that book um, I picked up a lot of good information from that and and you really kind of you get where you kind of get more efficient with your time et cetera so yeah it's uh, that's a good one so that's right. what I would recommend people start with and then from there I mean there's just you know. Um, uh, I, I'm not an auditory learner, but uh, a lot of my other business partners swear by um, signing up for an Audible account for uh, for getting through um, basically not the most fun reading. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, work, that, that, that stuff isn't really, I mean, it's certainly not stimulating reading. It's not reading for enjoyment. It's truly reading for information. But uh, yeah, they're not badly written. They're just not stimulating, you know. So, right. But we're checking out. And that concludes my conversation with Trey. You can find Trey at Richmond Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or their sister dojo, Revolution BJJ. For more episodes like this, visit our website at variousthingspodcast.com or listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This has been Various Things. Thanks for listening.